God, we are thankful uh, that you have provided your word for us. Uh, we're thankful that you've spoken. God, you have not, uh, you've not left us in the dark, but you have made uh, yourself known to us through uh, your son and also through your word. And so, God, we pray that as we come to uh, your word, which is your revelation to us, that you would also, through your word, reveal your son to us. God, we pray for distractions, uh, fears, uh, all of those things to be pushed to the side, and we pray that you would really speak to us through the truth of your word. God, that you would help, uh, help me to only uh, say things that are, that are true and faithful to the text, that Jesus would be exalted. God, we pray uh, for this text, a mix of an encouragement and, and also a mix of, of, of challenge, Lord, that we would receive both, God, with an open heart, understanding that you as our Heavenly Father desire what is good for us. So, God, make us teachable. Allow us to be humble and contrite, trembling under the authority of your word. And we know that your word doesn't return void, that you're going to produce something in each of us. And so we pray that, that you would do that in power and in strength and that Christ will be glorified and honored. We would be built up, we would be helped, and we would be strengthened in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one of the things I was thinking about recently uh, had to do with, with babies. Okay, how many of you guys have seen a baby before? Quick test, get every hand in the room up. Isn't it interesting, uh, when, it, when it comes to babies, isn't it interesting that everything that a baby does is cute? You ever notice that? Ba baby drools, it's cute. Uh, baby even farts, it's precious, right? Baby throws something at your cat. How funny, right? Everything that a baby does, by, by virtue of their size, by virtue of their face, by virtue of their just roundedness, everything that they do is cute. But if a 10-year-old were to do any of those things, if a 10-year-old were to drool on you, 10-year-old uh, were to, to, to fart on you, 10-year-old were to throw a book at your cat, right? N none of those things are cute, right? Th those, those, those things are a problem, uh, and those things would be a problem, why? Well, because we expect immaturity from a baby, but we expect maturity from a 10-year-old to some degree, right? We, we expect there to be a, a process and a development from immaturity into maturity. And this is a critical concern that, that God has for, for, for me and God has for you and God has for our church and God has for every single church, including the church of Corinth, that they would move from a spiritual immaturity progressively down the road to a spiritual maturity. This is in large part why the letter that we're looking at, 1 Corinthians, was even written uh, by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was to help this church of new believers in a diverse, dense, global, complex city to understand what it looks like to grow spiritually and not just be shaped by the wisdom of the city and the culture around them. This is why this book is so relevant and timely for us in Boston, where, where we often as well wrestle with being shaped by our own wisdom, by the wisdom of our city, by the wisdom of our culture, rather than by the wisdom from God. And when we struggle to grab hold of the wisdom of God and live by the wisdom of God, we find ourselves remaining in spiritual immaturity and not progressing into spiritual maturity, becoming more like Jesus that we might be a blessing to others in his name and we might reflect him in our character. So this text that we're going to look at today is really going to lay out 
the sort of litmus test for spiritual maturity. This text is going to show us uh, three critical and often overlooked aspects of what it means to be growing in spiritual maturity, to move from being a spiritual baby to being spiritually developed, strong, and growing. And the big idea we're going to see from this text is this, is that our spiritual maturity is revealed by how we live together as the church. Okay, so let's take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at uh, most of chapter 3. You can open it up on your Bible uh, in front of you or simply just tilt your head up uh, towards the screen and we will have it there for you as well. In uh, chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, uh, seeking to help them grow in spiritual maturity. This is God's word through the Apostle Paul. We'll look at it in chunks, 1 through 4. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, or of the world, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So notice the the language that the Apostle Paul uses there. You are spiritual what? Infants. You're infants in Christ. I wanted to give you steak, but you can only have milk. While there's jealousy, while there's strife, while there's infighting, where there's cliques, while there is this talk of people in the church, in their worship gathering, saying, I don't mess with Paul. I only rock with Apollos. I don't mess with Apollos. I only mess with Cephas. While you're having these cliques within your church, this infighting, this pride, this division within a body of of Christian believers, are you not merely just acting like everybody else in Corinth? Are you not just merely acting out of the sinful pride in you? Are you not just really mirroring the way that everybody else does things? Are you really following the wisdom of God, or are you just living by the wisdom of our city? Are you just living by the wisdom of our world? You're spiritual infants. This is what Paul must remind the Corinthians of. Our spiritual maturity is revealed by how we live together as the church. Here's the first thing that we see in these first four verses, is that if we follow worldly wisdom, we will end up being spiritually immature because worldly wisdom always produces a human-centered view of things. Worldly wisdom will lead us to be spiritually immature because worldly wisdom always produces a me-centered view of things. Right? Think, Think about this. How many of you have had this experience where you have an artist or a film or a book that you love and part of you wants to share it with other people and, and, and have them like it, but as soon as they like it, you sort of get angry? You ever had that? Like, I want you to like this, but now that you like this, I can't like it as much because it's not as cool because you know as well, right? And you have this wrestling within you where like, I want people to like this artist. I want them to get famous, but I don't want them to get too famous because they're my artist, Right? What is that? Is that not human wisdom? Is that not me, me, uh, me obsession? Is that not self-obsession? Is that not a being uh, centered on myself in this sense of pride in which I do want to share this insofar as everything that you see about that artist reflects back on me? Oh, yeah, well, I heard about that artist from Claude, or Claude recommended that book, or Claude recommended that film. Well, you know, the first person that told me that this person was a creative genius was my friend Claude, who was a greater creative genius, right? That's what we want. 
we have such a me-centered view of ourselves and a me-centered, self-centered, obsessive view of things emerges from the world's book of wisdom that says everything is about me. Glory comes to me. And so Paul is reminding the Corinthians, when you in the church divide and say, I roll with Apollos, I love Apollos preaching more, that's okay. But when you say, I follow Apollos more than I follow Jesus, I follow Paul more than I follow Jesus, you are following the wisdom of the world. Are you not merely being human? Are you not merely being worldly? And so this first test of spiritual maturity comes in these first four verses, that how we relate to the church reveals our spiritual wisdom. And in particular, the lens through which we see the church reveals our spiritual wisdom. You see, the, Corinth, the, the people of Corinth were looking at these church leaders not as servants of Christ, but as stars that rivaled Christ. They were looking at these leaders not as people meant to serve them, but as ways to attach to them in order to receive glory for themselves. Well, I'm smarter than you because I follow Apollos, and Apollos is the best preacher of the bunch. Right? A human-centered view of the church. And ultimately, what was this human-centered wisdom producing in Corinth? We, we've seen it in previous passages uh, over the last couple of weeks in, in chapter 2. But this human-centered wisdom is producing in Corinth division. The church is, is ripping at its seams. The beautiful ta tapestry of the churches is fragmenting at the seams because of human wisdom, which emerges from pride, emerges from self-centeredness, which always produces division. And so here becomes one of the major uh, tests for our spiritual maturity. The spiritually mature disciple or disciples of Jesus are agents of unity, not agents of division. The church of Corinth is getting ready to fracture because they have so many spiritually immature believers who bought into the wisdom of Corinth, which says sophistication, eloquence, distinguish yourself, receive glory for yourself, become the most uh, uh, well-spoken person, become the best athlete, become the best merchant. They had bought into the wisdom of their city, which was achieve, achieve, achieve. Be unique, be unique, be unique. They had bought into the wisdom of their city, the wisdom of their world, to the point that that worldly wisdom was producing, giving birth to its natural outcome, division in the church. Do, do we see the parallels between Corinth and our city? And so one of the first tests for us to see if we are growing in spiritual maturity is to measure to what degree are we agents of Christ-centered unity or to what degree does our self-centeredness actually end up producing division and fracture within the church. It's a deep encouragement to me that I can look, at, look out on all of you and, and, and really have a great confidence and sense and thankfulness to God that, that this is not a rampant problem in our church. That is the grace of God in our lives. But a couple questions to, to think about this. If you believe that the church exists primarily for you, you have bought into worldly wisdom that will lead to envy, jealousy, and division. But if you center your expectations in a church on the foundation of Christ rather than self, you will end up being an agent of unity. What are we centering our view of the church on? How do we see leaders in the church? Are they stars to be, to be followed? Are they stars to, to latch onto? Are they servants meant to point us to Jesus? 
How do we see the church that will reveal our spiritual maturity, revealed by how we live together as the church? Not only will uh, this reveal our spiritual maturity, how we, uh, how we live as agents of unity or division within the church, but also Paul is going to press us and press the Corinthians at the same time to really actually look at this, to, to not just think about how they see leaders or one another within the church centered on preference or centered on Christ, but he's actually going to push them to this, to, to, to really engage their actual foundational understanding of what the church really is. If you ever stop and think about what is the church? What is its purpose? What is its function? What is its goal? What drives it? Paul is going to push them on this because spiritual maturity is not just revealed by how we live together as a church, but also it's revealed by how we understand the church, right? Because our understanding drives how we live, some, live, uh, live in among something. There's a uh, clip of this, uh, ra- rather funny. I wish I could, could find it. I wouldn't show it, but I would email it to you. Uh, it's a clip of a man going to the gym. You know, at the beginning of the year, everyone goes to the gym again. Um, and so there's a man going to the gym, and uh, he clearly has not been to the gym very much because uh, he sits on top of the weights that go up and down. And so he sits on top of the weights, and he pulls, uh, instead of sitting in the chair, he sits on top of the weights, he puts his feet on the chair, which is where his bottom is supposed to go. You can tell I have toddlers, bottom, not butt. So he puts his, his bottom on the weights, he puts his feet on the chair, and he pulls. And so he pulls, and he goes up and down on the weights when he's really supposed to sit here, and the weights are supposed to go up and down as his muscles get a workout right? So he's doing this in the gym, working hard, thinking thinking that he's got it going on, and someone's filming it and and uploading it to YouTube and and making money off ad revenue. And this is a a fault of understanding, right? His understanding is is off, right? His understanding is incorrect, and so his actions that follow are are also off. And and Paul wants us here in this text, he wants the the Corinthians to really understand what is the nature of the church in order that we might live in a church, in, in and among the church, in a spiritually mature way, glorifying God and building one another up instead of dividing among one another. So we must understand what is the nature of the church. Let's look at the next little portion of the text. Five through nine. So Paul has just said, you're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Are you, are you not merely being human? And then he says this, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. What is Paul doing here? Paul here is showing us an understanding of what the church is. He is reminding the Corinthians to see the church not through a human-centered view of achievement, human-centered view of status, a Boston-centered view of eloquence. He's, he, he wants them to push all of that human wisdom aside, take the lens of the world's wisdom off, and put on the lens of God's wisdom when they look at this thing called the church, this body of believers with the same confession that Jesus is Lord. He wants them to see one another, to see the church through the lens of God's wisdom, not through the lens of human wisdom. Because human wisdom naturally would say, go and follow the most charismatic. Go and follow the most intelligence. 
Go to the place with the greatest building. Go do all of those things. But Paul says that, that's, not the, that's not the point. That's, that's not the way that we operate. We operate by a different set of wisdom that actually looks like foolishness. But truly, it is God's wisdom. And so Paul is pushing them to understand the very essence of the church. Think about it like this. If worldly wisdom centers on self-exaltation, uh, a right understanding of the church is sort of like an axe that is striking at the root of the world's wisdom. And that's what Paul is doing here at this point in the text. And Paul's blade of choice, the thing that he is using to strike at the root of the worldly wisdom that has infected the Corinthians, that also infects us, his blade of choice, his weapon of choice, his go-to tool is this simple truth that God is the source of the church. God is the source of the church. Look at the text. What is Paul? What is Apollos? What are they? They're just servants. They're worker bees. They're custodians. They're worthy of honor, but they're not worthy of worship. God himself is the source of the church. God is the life-giving source, the life-giving foundation of the church. And so if God is the source of the church, why are we clicking up over Paul? Why are we clicking up over Apollos? Why are we exalting Cephas if they're just the janitors serving the church of Jesus? human wisdom, pride, self-centeredness, a, a means and a way to attach to make ourselves feel greater. That's why. So Paul reminds them God himself is the source of the church. Think about it like this. It would be very easy in human wisdom to look at Paul who goes into a major, complex, diverse city where people worship all sorts of idols, where the idea of believing in one God only would be laughable foolishness. And Paul comes into a context like that and preaches the gospel, stays there for 18 months, and a church's birth. In human wisdom, we would look at Paul and we'd put him on the cover of Time magazine. We'd look at Paul and we'd interview him for the Boston Globe and say, how did you do it? But look at what Paul says about himself there. He says, I, I just planted. Then Apollos came through and put some water on it. But do you know who was behind everything? God. God himself is the source of the church. You see, if God is the source of the church, then God gets the praise for the church. So Paul is pushing back this praise of man and pointing the finger of praise upwards towards God. Notice what Paul even says this in verse 8. Paul and Apollos, he who plants and he who waters are one. We have the same purpose, just to be servants used by God. We're not special, the one who plants or the one who waters the church. Neither of them are special. They're not, we're not anything. We're on equal standing. All believers are on equal standing because we share the forgiveness and righteousness of Jesus. The one who gets the praise is the source of everything, God himself. Think about this. Whose idea, who had the idea for the church? God. It was God's very good own idea to save sinners from judgment that they deserve, and then not just save them, but bring them into his family. It was God's idea 
to not just create you, tolerate you, and then judge you, but to create you. And when you ran from him, to seek after you, to seek after you to such a degree that he sacrificed himself in and through his son's death. It was God's idea. And God's idea was not just to do that for you, but to do that for many, many, many others, countless others from all different backgrounds, all different life stages, all different cultures, all different places. And his idea was not just to do that and to have all of these people isolated across space and time and different cultures, but to bring them together into this family called the church. It was God's idea. And because it's God's idea, he is the source. He is the one who foots the bill. God then gets the praise. If God is the source of the church, then God is the focus of the church, and God is the centerpiece of the church. Not Paul, not Apollos. We brought a cactus up from my mom's house in Fort Myers, Florida, little baby cactus, and we brought it up uh, and put it on the windowsill of our, uh, of our kitchen. Plants in our house have a death sentence. Um, they die very quickly. Uh, either through Adrian tackling them or Kelsey or myself, I will not out anyone, uh, not watering them. So, so they, they basically come to die. Um, but this cactus, I mean, granted, a cacti I don't think need a lot of water, but I don't know if this cacti got any water. Um, and so it was just there on the windowsill. And if you look at this thing now, a year later, I mean, this, this thing is like as long as my arm. This, this thing really did it. <laughs> right? we, we're like, well, this is a work of God. Um, it has survived, and a plant has survived, not only survived, but thrived in the Acho household. This is incredible. Right? How, how silly would it be for us to look at that, that cactus and, 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 and fawn over the praise of myself, who I don't think has done anything, but of Kelsey, who probably has watered it at least once. W- would not the attention of praise not be on the person that watered it or the person that brought it, but on the actual scientific process behind it that allows a plant to grow without actually needing many resources? Would, would that not be the place to marvel and to just stop and wonder and say, I would love to learn more. How is this even possible? How, what, what power, what process is behind this that allows this plant to flourish? It's the same thing with the church. The person that gets the praise, the person that gets the awe is the one who had the idea and made the payment to make it happen, which is God himself. So let me challenge you and ask you, do you see in a deep way God as the source of the church, both globally but also locally? Do you see God as the source of the church? The spiritually mature disciple of Jesus understands that anything good that happens within the church, it comes from the hand and grace of God. God is the source. The spiritually mature disciple of Jesus understands that leaders in the church are worthy of respect and honor, as Scripture calls for, but they're at the end of the day just servants. They're not all that, they're they're not different than anybody else. The one who is on the pedestal is, is God Himself. Do do you understand this? Paul pushes us further. He pushes us further to understand that not only is God himself the source of the church, not only did the spiritually mature understand that, but the spiritually mature understand that God the Father is the source, and the spiritually mature understand that Jesus Christ is the foundation. That Jesus Christ is the centerpiece, the cornerstone upon which this group of believers redeemed by Jesus is built. Built up numerically to grow, but built up spiritually to grow. We understand God is the source, and Jesus is the foundation. Let's look at the next set of verses. Paul continues to push us forward in this idea. Look at what he says here. 
We'll look at verses uh, 10 and 11. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled or wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Paul is, is trying to answer the, Corinth, the Corinthians who would, who would put it, pit a division versus Paul versus Apollos and say, Paul, you got it started, but now Paulus is doing this, right? There would be two different camps. And Paul say, hey, I started it. He's finished it. We are one. Same purpose. Let each take care how he builds upon the foundation of Jesus. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation of the church. Do you believe this? Do you believe that every church rises or falls not based on the people in it primarily or the leaders leading it primarily, but on Jesus Christ alone? Do you believe that pastors and leaders die and move on, people relocate, and a church survives only by the strength, power, and leadership of its true, real pastor, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? A, a further challenge for us, do we evaluate churches through the grid of Jesus as the foundation or through the grid of the world's wisdom? Think about this. We, we so often buy into evaluating the church based on the world's wisdom, which, we, which would look something like this. We would think about sermons, and we would evaluate them based on certain criteria according to the world's wisdom. Are they clever? Did they make me laugh? And then after laughing, did it make me cry? Did it keep me awake? And did it give me a little bit of inspiration to at least get through Friday? Or maybe just Monday. Right? That's how we would evaluate a sermon according to the world's wisdom. According to the world's wisdom, we would, we would evaluate the music in this way. Was it good and was it skilled? We would, we would uh, according to the world's wisdom, evaluate the whole kind of gathering and structure and, and ecosystem of the church ar around this. Uh, am I glad that I came and participated in this or do I wish that I slept in? Let's be honest. According to the world's wisdom, that's how we would evaluate the church according to the foundation of the wisdom of our city or Corinth or any other place. But according to the wisdom of God, the spiritually mature disciple of Jesus does not think with that lens or that category. The spiritually mature disciple of Jesus looks at the church not through the lens of the world's wisdom, but through the reality that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, so everything that is attached to the church must be built upon him. So the criteria that we look at when we, when we look at uh, the church through the lens of spiritual wisdom, Christ is the foundation, the Father is the source, we would ask this. We would not think of a sermon and evaluate it based on the fact that was it novel, was it engaging, was it funny? Those things are nice. Those things are icing on the cake. But we would ask this one question. Was Jesus Christ central to the message from his word? That's the rise or fall question. For the spiritually mature disciple who understands that Jesus is the foundation of the church. Now, if it's funny and it's clever and it's well done, man, that makes it even better. But at the end of the day, it comes down to this. Is Jesus Christ the centerpiece of the message from his word? We would evaluate the music not based only on skillfulness, but we would evaluate it based on the foundation. Did the music lead me to reflect on Jesus? Because Jesus is the foundation of the church. We would think of the gathering. 
Whatever gathering in the church that we go to, not, we would not think about it through the lens of, am I glad that I came or do I wish I slept in or I was watching, doing something else or catching up on some laundry or, or whatever. We would not evaluate it based on that. We would evaluate it around this question. Did this gathering lead me a little bit closer to Jesus Christ? Because he is the foundation of everything. This is what the spiritually mature disciple begins to think about more and more. And this is what Paul is pressing the Corinthians to grasp. Because if they buy into the world's wisdom, they're going to continue to be at one another's throats. And the city is going to be deprived of a gospel people engaging, living, and serving, and showing Jesus off. There are high stakes attached for us here. So according to this criteria, are you moving closer to being a spiritually mature disciple of Jesus? Or are there still places of the world's wisdom where it has a hold on your thinking and your view of Jesus' church? Jesus is the foundation. This means that Christianity without Jesus is a joke. It's nothing. It's foolishness, even according to the Bible itself. Because the foundation of the church is Jesus' life death and resurrection, which brings the church into existence, a people saved by Jesus, being renewed by Jesus, following Jesus here and now. Jesus is everything. This means that a spiritually mature disciple of Jesus, everything that they do is meant to be connected to the foundation of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the foundation of the church. Now, up until this point, we've talked a lot about understanding, and this is what Paul, Paul pushes us towards, an understanding of the church, uh, of, of what it looks like to be spiritually mature in relation to the church. God is the source. Jesus is the foundation. Us as agents of unity because we're centered on Christ rather than agents of division. But now Paul is going to push us into action, which I know this is what you're waiting for. I know you're waiting to hear, what am I supposed to actually do? Not just what am I supposed to understand. Give me something to do with my hands. Well, Paul is going to give us something to do with your hands. Are you ready for this? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. That means you're ready. Okay, good. Let's look at verses. I believe 12 is where we're going to pick up, or rather, uh, yes, 12. Paul has given us understanding. Now, Paul is going to push us towards action. I don't think we're ready for this. I am not ready for this. This passage bothers me. This passage disturbs me. This passage challenges me. Listen to what Paul says here. God through Paul. 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, will be revealed. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, it will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, it will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I told you guys, we were, we were not ready for this. This is the final piece of spiritual wisdom of what a spiritually mature disciple understands or does. A spiritually mature disciple of Jesus understands that their service to the church needs to be done in a way that will pass Jesus' inspection. A spiritually mature disciple labors to build up the church in a way that will pass Jesus' inspection.
silence in the room. Build up the church in a way that will pass Jesus' inspection. Paul uh, states this, that he, if we trace the thread through the passage, he and Apollos are servants who build on the foundation of Christ. And then he says this, uh, speaking of himself and Apollos, but also speaking in a general way for all believers, he says this, that, that any work that we do to the church, that means for the body of believers, and really this extends to, to anything we do with our lives, period, right? Uh, Jesus will evaluate it. And Paul is saying this, the things that we do in Jesus' name for Jesus' church or even outside of the church in Jesus' name, the things that are connected to Jesus, that honor Jesus, will endure. The things that are not will expire. Here's what this means. This means every single disciple of Jesus Everything that a disciple of Jesus does will be scrutinized by Jesus Christ with a fine-toothed comb through the categories of his all-knowing omniscience, his completely pure standard, and his unsearchable righteousness. You ever had someone search through your bag? It's just kind of this moment of being exposed. Like, I hope they don't see the mints in there, the like extra strength breath mints. <laughs> Let them know my breath is really, really bad. Right, this moment of vulnerability where these, this, this thing that you intentionally conceal, not maliciously, but, it, but it's poured out and somebody looks through it. Jesus Christ is going to take a fine tooth comb and look through every single thing we have ever done with our lives in serving the church and he will inspect it. It is right, it's okay for you to think soberly when you hear this. In other words, Jesus, every disciple of Jesus, think of Jesus' doodle. Jesus has got a doodle. And in that doodle, there is a time and a place where we will step into heaven's office, or the new heavens and new earth office. We will step into it, and we will have a divine performance review with Jesus Christ. And the spiritually mature disciple of Jesus, according to Paul, who is living by spiritual wisdom, not the world's wisdom, the spiritually mature disciple of Jesus, they know this. They understand this, they think about this, and they live in light of this. This idea of the day, Jesus' return. The spiritually mature disciple of Jesus, they have this on their mind. It is something they consider. It's not something that makes them paranoid, but this is something that is on their radar. So the question for us becomes this. How much do we think about this reality? How much do we consider this? How much does this shape the things that we do and the choices that we make right now? A portion of your spiritual maturity is revealed by your answer and by the type of labor and service you give in Jesus' name. Now, here's the objection that's hanging in the air for each of us. This sounds harsh. Can we be honest? The objection, this sounds very harsh. Some of you are like, this is not the Jesus that I know. <laughs> what Jesus do you know? Jesus I made up, right? This, 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 but this isn't the common thing that we think of when we think about Jesus. This sounds harsh. This sounds antithetical. This sounds opposite to the grace of God in the gospel where he would give his son for us that we would be accepted. This sounds opposite of that, doesn't it? This seems harder. This seems different. 
Divine performance review. This sounds tough, and it, it, it is tough, but it is, but it is not opposite of the gospel, as we will see shortly. This does sound difficult. Why such scrutiny here? Why is Jesus so intense? Why can't he just take our service for what it is? This doesn't seem loving. These are the things running through our heads, if we're going to be honest. This is too intense. Why, Jesus? Why? Well, here's why. Jesus loves us so much, he will not settle for subpar. Look at the next verses. 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in you. Temple, we're getting rich imagery from the rest of scripture we don't have time to get into. This idea that the dwelling place of God, the people of God are now the dwelling place of God because the spirit of Christ dwells within us. Something that is sacred, something that is special, something that we can't fully wrap our minds around. The spirit of God dwells in you. Don't you know that? If you knew that, you would live different. If you knew that, you would rejoice. If you knew that, you would be completely set apart in your living and your thinking. You would not follow the ways of the world. This is what Paul says. You are sacred and special. Do you not understand how treasured you are by God? So treasured that verse 17 comes next. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Do you see how passionate God is about you? Because the spirit of Christ dwells within you. God says, anybody who touches my church, anybody who comes against my church, anybody who seeks to destroy my church, it is so sacred to me that I myself will be against them. This is like a parent seeing their child under attack. The spirit of God dwells within the church. So if you come at the church, you best be ready for God to come at you. Now, how does this connect to this, this scrutiny that Jesus is going to give us? Well, it shows us this in this way, that God so loves his church. If God so loves his church that he will have beef with anybody who comes against his church, then it would make sense that God so loves his church that he would be very serious that his church loves his church, that his church loves one another in a way that passes his inspection of loving scrutiny because he cares about his kids. This is what God is laying out for us. He loves his church so much, he will deal with the person outside of it that seeks to destroy it, but his righteousness and love is so significant for his church that he cares about how the siblings within the church serve and treat one another in Jesus' name. So his standard is high. We've seen this if we've ever seen our parents or guardians stand up for us. I had this moment where a girl in my neighborhood said that I punched her, which was a lie, but her dad believed her, rightfully so. He should believe his daughter. So he comes out at me, and I'm eight, and he's like, I'm going to beat you up now. I'm like, give me one minute, <laughs> then you can beat me up. And in this minute, I will run away. Um, so that's what I did. And my mom came out, and my mom unleashed on this man. Unleashed. The African, the African unleashing. Um, the West African unleashing. And our friend, uh, my best friend's mom was like, I have never seen that in my life. <laughs> and it was this moment where this is what happens when something that you love or someone that you love is attacked. There is a righteous sense of defense. And, and that's what we see here from God. He loves his church. He, you are so precious to him. The church uh, uh, as, a, as a family is so precious to him that he cares about the service that is rendered to it. He cares about Jesus' honor and name, and he cares that, that someone would come against it. He cares that deeply. And so he is, is serious about this. It spills out to outsiders, but it spills out into how we serve and love and treat one another. 
So we must answer this question. What, is the, what, does, um, what does it mean then to, to think about laboring in such a way that will honor Jesus, build on his foundation, and passes the scrutiny that God has for us? I want you to think about this in a couple of ways. What do you want Jesus to say to you at the end of it all? If someone were to write, if you were to write your eulogy, what do you want it to say? Not just about the type of person you were, not just about how, how friendly you were to your friends, but in terms of what your life meant for Jesus' sake and Jesus' kingdom. What would you want it to say? The spiritually mature disciple thinks about this because they're planning ahead according to God's wisdom, not living by the world's wisdom, which would just say check Instagram every three hours. Right? We're thinking ahead. How do you live and how you serve and how you act among the church now is going to be your answer. The spiritually mature disciple of Jesus sees this this scrutiny that Jesus is going to give to our lives and to our deeds, and they see it not as a burden, but they see it as an opportunity. That Jesus is giving us a loving reminder that our life matters and we can have an eternal impact and significance, and so we ought to think proactively, what do we want that, that significance and that impact to be? Building up the church in Jesus' name. Let me give you two things really quickly. Uh, The type of service. Because Jesus is the foundation, Lord, and source of the church. Everything we do in the church must be connected to him to to honor him. It must align with him. It must connect to his word. It must uh, point people to him. And there are different ways for us to do this labor that I think matters. We can think about this in categories. Think about this in terms of your money. How are you using your money as a tool to build on the foundation of Jesus that other people are built up in Jesus, help to know Jesus, to grow with Jesus? How do you use your possessions? If you have a home. Or maybe you use, how do you use your gifts? How do you use your time? I think so many of us will be surprised when we go into Jesus' office or we get into the new heavens and new earth. I'm convinced of this. It's not theologically accurate necessarily, but I'm convinced using my imagination. You know, everywhere you go here, the ESPN is on 24-7. Sports, replay, replay, replay. In the new heavens and new earth, I would bet a little bit of money. If you want to take this bet up on me now, we'll settle it in heaven. I'll take this bet that in the new heavens and new earth, there will be nice TVs and they will not display sports, but it's just going to be this endless loop of the service that has been done in Jesus' name across all time, across all people, across all cultures. And we're just going to sit, and among many other things that we're going to do when I take a break from playing basketball and come sit and look and see and look at this and say, hey, did you know Jesus really cared? Jesus really cared about those prayers that we prayed back in college on campus for our friend. And look, it's playing on the monitors of the new heavens and new earth. This built up the church of Jesus. I mean, you're going to see on that reel, you're going to see how many times you came here and set up these chairs, how many times you taught kids the gospel upstairs, how many times you opened your house to have a gospel community, how many times you showed up for community group when you were dead tired, but you showed up and people were encouraged just by your presence. We're going to see all of those things, and we're going to be in awe and wonder and say, Jesus, use that. I had no idea. Your time, your money, your service, your prayers, your giving, your generosity, your welcoming of a new person, all of these things, if you're doing them from the motive of loving Jesus, they are building up his church, the stuff that nobody sees, everyone will see on that day. And they will honor you, but the praise will go to him. The spiritually mature disciple understands this, and they live in light of it. 
And Jesus says this. Look at how great Jesus is. He says that there are ultimately two outcomes that come from this in 14 and 15. If the work that we do is connected to Jesus, it survives and we will receive a reward. We'll receive a a hand clap, a praise, honor. Look at this, 15. If anyone's work doesn't, it's not connected to Jesus. It's done from the wrong motives. It will be burned up. We will suffer loss, though they themselves will be saved. Look at this. Even our weak, mixed motive, impure work for Jesus, even that work will not exclude us from Jesus' presence. Do you understand this? So you might be the disciple that's saying to yourself right now, I have done nothing for Jesus. I have been slothful. I have given no labor. I've done nothing at all. Guess what? You are not saved and loved by God based on the work that you do, but the work that Jesus has done. Your work is just an opportunity to honor him. And so even if you do nothing, you're still embraced by the king. Think about this. Jesus could know every single thing of your life, every single mixed motive, and still look at you and say, I love you. Who knows all of your baggage like that and still looks at you with 100% confidence and assurance and says, I love you. I welcome you. Isn't it usually that the more somebody knows about you, the more they begin to remove themselves from the situation? Jesus says he does the exact opposite. Because the foundation of the church is his life, his death, his resurrection. The spiritually mature disciple of Jesus understands this, and they don't move to labor out of this based on guilt, based on fear, but they labor out of this based on an overwhelming sense of Jesus is incredible. I want to do something. I want to build up the church. I want to point people to the foundation because of what he has sacrificed, what he has given, and the love that says, even if I labor poorly, He will never turn his back on me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text. It teaches us that our deepest secrets, our most impure motivations, our sins, they cannot separate us from the love of Christ. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son. We thank you, Jesus, that you are willing to give yourself. We thank you that you have also created an opportunity where we can serve in and among your people and in your world, and our lives matter. They can have an impact on others. We ask that you would help us by the power of your spirit, motivated by grace, to, to not waste our lives, but to use the, the talents, the gifts, the possessions, the money. We, would, we ask that you would allow us to use those things, even in just ordinary ways, to honor you, to point people to you, to build up your church. God, we thank you uh, for the ways in which you have done that, the ways in which we can just think about um, how you have uh, used our our simple service to build people up over the course of our church plan and the ways you'll do that in the future. But God, we want to, at this point in time, give all the praise and honor to you as the source of the church, as the one who was willing to give your son for us, to welcome us into your family. Help us to rejoice, help us to enjoy, help us to celebrate the good news and the work of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.